When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. This week on the podcast, I am speaking with Stefan Lee, who's the author of K-Pop Confidential and its highly anticipated sequel, K-Pop Revolution. We don't cover a lot of YA on the podcast, but the topic of his YA series is the phenomenon of K-Pop, something I've always been fascinated with. Stefan and I have also known each other for a long time on the book circuit in New York. And as you'll hear in this episode, he's always the smart and interesting person you want to chat to at the book party. We talk about K-pop, obviously, his recent move from New York to LA, and his experience of feeling like an outsider, both in America and Korea. I hope you enjoy this episode. How are you feeling having just moved to LA? I'm feeling great. And I feel like such a traitor to New York, but I don't miss it yet. (laughs) But I've only been here for five months. And it's so funny because right when I got here, I don't even know how they found me, but I got reached out to by the LA Times. um, And they wanted to do a whole story about writers who moved from New York to LA very recently. (laughs) It was actually a party in an author's backyard with these all these amazing authors who had either moved to LA for a while ago or recently, but it was all just about that great migration. And it was so fun to connect with other people who had just done the same thing. But apparently it's a trend. Oh, I think it's definitely a trend. The search for sunlight and outdoors. And I think the pandemic also pushed us, if we had that inkling, to try somewhere else or have a new type of life. It certainly was that impulse, wasn't it? Yes, the catalyst. So today we're talking about two of your books, your first book, K-Pop Confidential, which was a big hit YA novel, and then its sequel, K-Pop Revolution, which is going to be out in April. Give us the setup. Sure. So the first book is about Candace Park. She is a teenager, a Korean-American living in New Jersey, and she enters an audition for a K-pop company just on a whim, and she actually passes the audition. And that doesn't mean she's suddenly a star. That means she has to go into a K-pop trainee program in Korea, 
and she somehow manages to convince her very strict immigrant parents to allow her to go just for a summer. And she is in way over her head when she's actually in Korea. She's at the same K-pop company as the biggest boy group in the world. And this company is looking for their first ever girl group that's supposed to be the female counterpart to SLK, the biggest boy band in the world. Um, and one one regret I have about the books is I almost wish I didn't put the word K-pop in the title because I do think that this is this story is interesting to people who don't know anything about K-pop or don't really think that they were interested in K-pop <laughs> because my biggest inspiration for this was actually the Hunger Games because, you know, young people being put into a very high pressure situation with high stakes and kind of having to battle it out for very limited spoils, <laughs> i.e. getting to debut as a star, is a big allegory for you know, young people and their struggles in society today. So I kind of want everyone to know that if you didn't know much about K-pop, this is going to be the conversation that illuminates everything for you. <laughs> I've been listening to a lot of that song, Butter. Um, oh, yes, by BTS. By BTS. And I know that's kind of just like the entryway song for K-pop. Yes. So I want to know, you're Korean-American yourself, Growing up, like at what point did you become aware of K-pop and were they the posters that were all around your bedroom or, or not so much? Not so much, really. Um, when I was growing up in the 90s and early 2000s, I was all about fitting in or trying my best to fit in with, you know, mainstream culture, what was cool to people. And in my school, at least, that was not K-pop. So I was actually very into pop music in general. The posters that I would have loved to have on my wall, but was maybe too scared or ashamed to when I was, you know, a little closeted boy in Atlanta, Georgia, were they would have been like Britney Spears and a lot of female pop stars, actually. I was never really into boy bands and never really had those crushes. I always just thought that female stars were just the coolest and were the people I wanted to be. <laughs> so I actually didn't get into K-pop until much later when I was actually a staff writer at Entertainment Weekly. Actually in 2014, a little bit after Psy and Gangnam Style really took over and a few other groups were becoming prominent in America, Entertainment Weekly sent me for three weeks to Korea. And this was the first time they sent me anywhere. <laughs> wow. I actually learned a lot on that trip because Entertainment Weekly, you know, I've interviewed like every American star there is. Um, for any like American A-lister, I could get someone on the phone right away. But for Korean entertainment, I had no clue how to get in and had to do it all on my own. And actually, my mom moved back to Korea um, a few years earlier than that. And she's the one who got me all these interviews. She got me interviews with Bong Joon-ho, the director of Parasite, who won the Academy Awards for oh. basically everything. She got me interviews with huge K-pop stars who are very, very hard to get interviews with. And she's not in the entertainment industry. She's just a mom. <laughs> but she somehow managed to do this. Um, so I learned so much. I never actually got to write the article because it got canceled while I was flying back to the States <laughs> because of an editor changeover, which happens all the time in publishing. Um, but 
I still got to sit on all this information and all these interviews, and I, they ended up becoming very helpful for writing these novels. Wow, there's so much in there. I'm sure your mom was absolutely charming and probably very disarming compared to the types of kind of sharky people I can imagine going for interviews. But before that, had you been going back to Korea much within your own childhood or was that trip kind of an awakening for you as well? I had been going back once in a while and... Yes, it always is very awakening because, you know, I don't often forget that I'm a minority in the States, but it is just my life. And then it's always a contrast when I go to, you know, the country of my parents' origin, where on the outside, I look, you know, like everyone else. Um, Korea is not exactly racially diverse. Um, so it's just seeing all these Korean people everywhere I looked. It's a very silly thing to say, but I, I was just very struck by, wow, Korean people are everywhere. <laughs> and they're all sorts of different types of Korean people, too. I was also struck by how quickly people could tell that I was foreign. What do you think gave you away? I think a lot of it was just the way I carried myself or maybe the way I dressed. Um, because I think in a country like Korea, you know, people follow the same kind of trends and maybe I wasn't super aware of them. Um, maybe I'm a little slouchier, <laughs> but it's, it was really striking just to think, okay, I've, I do know that I'm a minority in the U.S., but then even in Korea, I definitely feel like maybe even more of one. And I definitely put that dynamic into the book for my main character. Well, definitely. Candace is, as we said, Korean-American. And I guess that was a pretty important choice for you to make. Did you feel mm -hmm. that it would be very difficult to embody a native Korean as your main character? Yes. And I also thought it would be a great intro to this world to have an outsider. Um, and I think a reader who knows nothing about K-pop or nothing about Korean culture would really be able to see this world through Candace's eyes because she is a fish out of water. She is as foreign, despite being Korean American, as you know anyone else would be in this world. Well, can you explain the origin of K-pop and um, how in Korea and in America they develop these groups and the process that goes along with that and how intense these training schools are? Yes, it's so different from the Hollywood system in where even with groups or formations of groups, it's very individualistic. Someone decides they have a dream, um, hopefully talent, and then they really pursue this dream that's very difficult to attain. Whereas the K-pop system is a bit different. Of course, um, there are many driven young people who want to do nothing but music. But if you get recruited as usually a very young person, um, these training facilities will help mold you into a good singer, will help mold you into a dancer who can do these very precise moves. And they will train you for years and years and years and years within a company. And when it comes time to decide either a lineup or 
a solo debut, they will choose the best of the best and the people who really fit the mold of what they're looking for and out of their trainee groups. And it's a pretty brutal process because a lot of these kids give up their entire childhoods for this one very, very um, basically impossible dream um, for the chance to debut. And then even once you debut, there's very little chance of becoming extremely successful. So the stakes are incredibly high. And I I thought that even if, you know, you're someone who doesn't know anything about K-pop or aren't even that interested in it, it was a fascinating world and kind of a metaphor for how we as young people strive for anything, whether it's getting into college excelling in sports. It's never just about the talent. It's about kind of fitting the mold that usually a generation before you has set all the rules for. And I also found out that you had a friend who went through this system. What was their experience? Were they a a Korean American or were they picked out in Korea and then kind of molded into the system? And when that happens, do you leave home How cut off are these kids from their parents? Well, if you already live in Korea, a lot of the kids live at home, but they spend all of their free time after school in training. But then when it gets closer to debut time, maybe you actually will move into a dorm and basically train full time. And either way, the hours are completely, completely insane. (laughs) My friend who went through the system had a very difficult time with it. They are Korean American. And a lot of the difficulty wasn't just the physical strain of just around the clock training. It was a lot of mental stress in terms of having every flaw pointed out to them at all times, being constantly threatened you know, follow our rules even better or even closer. This will all be for nothing. (laughs) So uh, there was kind of that mental torture of, is this even going to work out? Um, So that really captured me. And I also want to stress that, you know, especially in foreign media, people like to sort of cast the K-pop world as so restrictive or so inhumane. But I would argue that entertainment industries around the world, or just basically anything where young people are somewhat commodified for their talents is very much the same. I didn't want to single out Korea as being singularly rough, but it it definitely is a very, very challenging environment. And I really thought of it as the closest thing to the real life Hunger Games that exists in the world. (laughs) And I think, you know, what there's been a lot of suicides within the the K-pop community of these stars mm-hmm. because the mental toll is so great. I'm sure your book contributed to the a lot of people finding K-pop and contributing to that popularity. But have you seen the industry change to reflect that? And I, the second book, K-pop Revolution, really does delve into the darker sides of the industry. What was that like writing a second book and really wanting to include some of these really important Yes, So I do think that K-pop as an industry is taking in a lot of the criticism and just 
sort of um, evolving to reflect the evolution of fandom and also to reflect to take some lessons from a lot of the tragedies that have happened and you definitely see more stars being very public about mental health because um, you know maybe in Korean culture that maybe the way people talk about it is a bit different Um, but things are changing really really for the better and it's very heartening to see But one thing that changed from writing the first book to writing the second book that changed personally for me was just kind of getting the feeling of what it's like to put a creative work out there. (laughs) And um, just like in the first book, Candace, my main character's whole journey is very sort of personal or internal because she's locked away in a trainee facility. Um, There are heroes and villains within that training facility, but it's all very cloistered. And then in the second book, she has to deal with, like you said, the whole world um, pointing out, you know, her flaws. And on a much, much smaller scale, even putting out, you know, my first young adult novel, I was surprised by how much it really affected me (laughs) mentally and emotionally because I thought as, you know, Angela, like you and I met when we were kind of on the book media circuit, we've interviewed tons of publishers and authors, and we know everything about the process. So I thought I would come in very, very ready for it. But then being on the other side was just completely different. I think anyone who puts out a book, but anyone who published in 2020 in the middle of the pandemic, there were a lot of disappointments in terms of, you know, um, not getting as much coverage as I would have liked or not doing a full big promotional (laughs) tour or whatever. Um, But also, I think that all of us were a bit more online than maybe we would have been if we had access to the outer world. And I just remember being so anxious about responses online. Um, I think my first book is overall pretty uncontroversial. And, you know, the reception was all like, you know, pretty much as positive as you could wish for. But even even the small number of negative reactions just really just did a number on me. you see all these kind of incidents where people's books get canceled or the narrative about their first book really gets away from them online. (laughs) Um, And a lot of times it's based on one reader who has one take and then a lot of people who haven't read the book piling on. So I just saw that happening to so many people. Um, And I was very paranoid that that would happen to me. And then on a level, it's... uh, did um there were there was a i have to say a white k-pop journalist who um put out a tweet about my book a month before it came out which was a very vulnerable time (laughs) and it basically singled out three words in my entire novel and she tried to frame it as oh this man is you know writing about women and the uh, or young girls in the wrong way it was very frustrating because the phrases that she pulled out just were so completely out of context. But then, of course, um, without really putting much thought into it or investigating anything or reading anything, um, you know, just like 
hundreds and hundreds of people responded, retweeted, you know, made sort of threats about like, oh, we're going to make sure that this book doesn't get published. But luckily, within about a day, it all disappeared. So it didn't really catch on, but it was very scary. And because it was the first, you know, large reaction to the book that I had gotten outside of my friends or my publishers, I was very worried. I was like, oh, maybe a lot of people will think this way once they read the book. And the irony is the journalist who made this big stink she actually reviewed my book for a national publication and gave it a rave. And then she interviewed me several times. And um, I think she did basically even forgot that she had done this or that it was me. Um, and it was very clear to me that she didn't actually mean it. And it actually informed a, a bit of what I put Candace through in the second book, because um, it is very scary to put yourself out there and you can't really control the narrative, and you sh probably shouldn't even try, but um, it can it can feel very dangerous and very scary. So yeah, yeah, I I put a lot of that into the second book, but on a much larger scale than what oh, I experienced. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm interested. Did this? Did you ever mention the tweet to the journalist and say, you know, you you wrote this about my book? Why? <laughs> No, I I didn't do that because um, she was actually very nice to me and just very complimentary to me in all ways that mattered. So I really just took it as a lesson in um, people when they might insult you in ways that feel very high stakes to you, they're actually not really thinking that hard about it. And they're not really thinking of you as a person. Um, so... I decided just to let it go and take it as a learning lesson. <laughs> so many people are looking for content, right? Mm -hmm. They're looking for something to tweet, retweet, to kind of engage with the world. And I think they can do that without realizing the impact it can have on the person whose work they're tweeting about, particularly if it mm -hmm. has a negative connotation to it. Yes. And the part that bugs me is that sometimes people tweet out this negativity in a way that they try to make it seem like it's for a good cause or they're f fighting on behalf of something. <laughs> but when it, it really turns out that th they don't always really care about that. So it, it's just like a complicated way that kind of um, illustrated how sometimes social media can be used in a really damaging way. Definitely. I can't imagine how that felt. You know, I just spoke for a long time about kind of the pitfalls of social media, but the books also explore just the power power of social media for good as well, because, um, you know, not to spoil much, but in the first book, Candace finds a way to sort of speak out against a lot of issues that she finds in the K-pop industry in a way that goes really viral and seems to help a lot of people. Well, to go back to the very kind of beginning of K-pop, why do you think it is so popular? Well, I think it's, in a way, some people who are not K-pop fans um, say this in kind of a negative way, but I actually find it to be a positive thing. Some people find the pop 
the very popular, poppy, catchy hooks to feel a little bit like the early 2000s or 90s. But I think a lot of people want to go back to that time. And I think a lot of just like the pure joy. Don't we of all? Yes, exactly. I think the pure joy of the music just feels a little bit like a throwback and a bit more like a in more innocent time. And um, I think the visuals are just so innovative and the choreography is so innovative. I feel like lately in Western music, people aren't really going for that as much or the artists aren't really trying for that as much. And I think um, a lot of the fans just love the effort and just how dazzling it is to witness. Um, but also, uh, going back to my three-week trip to Korea, what I really learned on that trip is how important entertainment is to Korea and how long the Korean entertainment industry has been working towards the moment that we're living in now, where Squid Game is the biggest show that's ever been on Netflix, um, where BTS is the biggest group in the world, beating out you know Taylor Swift and Drake, <laughs> um, where a Korean film cleans up at the Oscars. Um, this is not an accident. Um, the Korean government actually invests in creators and innovation in entertainment because Korea is such a small country and um, it has a history of being, you know, sort of dominated by other powers. Um, it doesn't have a ton of natural resources. So what they can do is be very creative and tell stories. Um, and there's just been like a huge emphasis on that. And Korea really wants to share. Um, a lot of other countries around Korea, um, you know, put out wonderful, great art um, and literature, but don't necessarily invest in sharing it with the world. But I, Korea has is one of the most patriotic countries. And um, I think after so many centuries of not really having a voice on the world stage, um, there's this very strong desire to have that. And um, I think it's just kind of beautiful the way it's happening. And, you know, um, even though I was born here and, you know, Korean is very much my second language after English. I feel a part of this too, because, um, you know, K Korea doesn't just want, you know, only Koreanness to be shared around the world. They want to kind of incorporate their Koreanness to other cultures. And I think Korean Americans are also a big part of this as well. Well, my sense, and I hope it's not a generalization in any way, and I haven't been to Korea and I would love to, <laughs> is that it's a place where people love to party yes. and that the nightlife is mm -hmm. like pretty wild and crazy. I'm wondering, did you get to experience that when you were there? A little bit. When I was still in college, I went and spent a summer there. Um, this is kind of notorious. If there are any Korean Americans listening to this, they'll kind of like recognize this and laugh. But a lot of Korean Americans when they're in college go to um, Korea to learn the language in the summer. And these tend to be very wild programs. I was was and still am such a nerd, and I was so out of place in those programs that I just kind of like was very innocent. But um, yes, and it's funny because I think even in the public, there there is this 
perception that, you know, East Asians, including Koreans, are very proper, care about manners. And I think that that is true in terms of respect. But Koreans are also very fiery, you know. Um, they love to laugh, big emotions, you know. And that's why you see in K-dramas, to a Western eye, they might feel a little melodramatic. Whereas I think it just reflects Korean character, which is very hot and passionate. So um, I also think that's why Korean entertainment translates so well. It comes completely from the heart. <laughs> and it goes to extremes. I love that melodrama. And it's interesting <laughs> you point to the kind of really elaborate visuals because the the music videos have 700 million views. Yes. These. One of them looks like the Pirates of the Caribbean, like the cost, yes. the scale, um, I think is something that, you know, in the music industry, all we hear about is how there's no money for creators and there's you know no mm -hmm. music videos or any of those things that I think we loved in the like 90s and like you said 2000s like remember when you would wait for the like MTV or in Australia we had this program called Rage which mm -hmm. was the music video countdowns mm -hmm. um and you know you knew when it started ticking towards a certain time you're like what's number four what's number three and you'd watch <laughs> them like it was a you know tv program to tune into every saturday um so i i'm glad that kind of young people still get that in a way and i guess having social media and tiktok and all these other platforms to share is almost like their version of that absolutely and I think that that kind of passion is very infectious. And that's why, you know, the vast majority of the most ardent K-pop fans are not Korean. <laughs> They're just all over the world. And I think it's because they see that kind of very distinct Korean emotionality and passion in the music and in the films and the TV shows. And it inspires a certain kind of devotion, I think, because... Um, there really aren't that many other people in the world who are really wearing their hearts on their sleeves quite as much, in my opinion, um, because there's more of an effort to be cool or to be kind of um, unapproachable. But um, K-pop stars make themselves very approachable, <laughs> which sometimes makes it probably a life a little bit harder for them. But um, yeah, there's this kind of um, sense that, you know, you owe a bit of respect to the people who listen to you. Um, and who, you know, stream your videos. And I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing. And that's something that I s sort of um, tried to be careful about with both books in that I didn't want Candace as a Korean American to be this complete outsider who comes in and says, everything needs to change, you know, and have kind of a disrespect for the culture. I mean, I do think that she does do that. And that's why she's a flawed character. I don't think she's always right. <laughs> so when she comes in, she doesn't understand how, what big stakes there are. Like a lot of these rules that seem a little excessively strict or just how seriously people take K-pop in the trainee facility around her it's because there's so much pride in it and it's so important and you're not just representing yourself, you're representing a whole people in front of the world. So um, I think Candace, at the same time as she kind of bristles against aspects of this, I wanted to show her kind of understanding and respecting it as well. So I have 
one last question for you. What lights you up? Oh, gosh. What lights me up? Um, I don't... I love that you asked this right now. Um, even getting away from books or even the topics that we've been t- discussing right now. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, well, moving to L.A. has lit me up. Not, I don't think necessarily just because of the city itself, but um, just being in an atmosphere of change. Um, I've kind of realized, and a big change like a location change can just open your eyes to what limitations you've been putting on yourself internally. Um, And I just feel very, I don't know, I've been just appreciating myself and kind of loving myself a lot lately. And I really just think it was something like moving that really brought that out. (laughs) Such a wonderful answer. Yeah, just making a change that you've wanted to make for a while and seeing what happens. That lights me up. (laughs) Well, it sounds like there's an openness that's come from that change. Absolutely. I think that's wonderful. Oh my goodness, thank you so much for chatting and for sharing so much personal stuff. Must have been a lot to go through, but congratulations on your success. There's nothing better than seeing someone who you know works really hard find that. Angela, thank you so much. Um, I've always listened to Lit Up. You know this. I'm a huge fan of yours. Oh, that's lovely to hear. Well, when I'm in LA, I'm coming to see you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Stephen Lee. His book, K-Pop Revolution will be available April 5th and you can pre-order via the link in our bio. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Rodofsky. See you in two weeks. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.